you've reached the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm so lucky today because I have a wonderful uh, co-host with me today, Paul Danzig. He's my buddy, and he's a great host, and he's used to doing this stuff as well. So thank you, Paul, for being here. Hey, yeah. Martin. Great to be here. Good, good. Our, great, our, our guest today, actually, is Tracy Rains. She has her BA from the University of San Diego, which I guess is a rival of USC, kind of. Uh, she has a Master's of Education in International Education Policy at, from Harvard, Ivy League School. Um, she's a Regional Director of the International Rescue Committee. That's her current position. She's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. And her previous job, she worked at American Red Cross as the Director of International Response in their International Response Operations Center. She's led, led close to 200, 200 responses to disasters in 75 dis different countries, including Nepal, Liberia, when they had the Ebola uh, outbreak, uh, Hurricane Sandy, the Japanese tsunami relief and aid. And also she helped with the response to 9-11 as well. But thank you so much for being here, Tracy. I really appreciate you. Great. Really, really happy to be with you. Thanks so much, Martin. Good to see you, Paul. I know we're lucky to have Paul here. I, I, I dragged Paul into all these things. He, uh, and he, he's, he's been so nice to say, yes, I'll come along with you figure on this journey, but I really appreciate him being here. So I'll start off with a couple of questions. They're just some, some of the introductory questions that I go through and then Paul's going to take it from there. Uh, what were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in Southern California, uh, in Long Beach, uh, and grew up in Orange County, uh, my whole family is still in the area. I have since moved to the East Coast uh, or overseas for most of my career, but spent my time up through college uh, in Long Beach, Santa Ana, Orange County, San Diego area. And then what was your childhood like growing up? Do you have any brothers and sisters? And tell me about your mom and dad. Yeah, um, I am an only child, which I think from my generation is pretty unusual. Um, my parents met at Chapman University in Orange. Um, uh, they met, I like to say they or remind people they met at Semester at Sea, um, which is a fantastic program for folks to, to see the world um, uh, early in their college career. So they met at Semester at Sea their freshman year. Um, they were uh, married shortly after college uh, and had, uh, had me and just um, had one by choice. So we had a pretty you know, tight nuclear family um, from the beginning, um, really happily married uh, uh, for over 40 years. Um, um, and yeah, I had, a, I had a pretty, you know, I, I, you know, I'm from a biracial family. So some interesting dynamics, both in our, you know, immediate family and, and uh, extended family that I think have really um, shaped me as well. But I had a really lovely, supportive, you know, positive upbringing, to be honest. I'm very fortunate and privileged in that way. I feel very grateful for my immediate family, my parents, as well as my, you know, um, extended family. So had a, um, you know, a lovely place to grow up in Southern California. So what was your relationship like with your, your mom and dad? Yeah, as I said, you know, being a, you know, an only child, I think it's, it, it does shape you, right? I mean, you're with your parents a lot. You're with adults a lot. You're with, you know, my parents were very, um, in the world, they were social and, um, you know, worked both in, uh, both of them worked for the federal government. My father worked for the federal government. My mother worked for the County of Orange. Um, and so, and my grandparents, similar kind of pathways were very um, sort of civil servant focused, um, uh, working uh, and believed in government and believed in government working well for people and by people. Um, my, so with, with that kind of, you know, background, we were very comfortable um, as a family, but, you know, 
um, sort of middle income upbringing, but very comfortable. And um, they were big travelers, you know, even locally. So I think I grew up a lot, you know, being with my parents quite a bit, um, being with, you know, older family quite a bit, um, other, you know, friends and family who are a little bit older than me quite a bit. Um, and I got to see the, you know, I, I started off young in a traveling mode, you know, whether it was just sort of, you know, Yosemite and, and, you know, Big Bear and things like that in California, but we were always open to what was happening around us. Um, and I think that had a huge impact on, you know, my trajectory not to get too far ahead, but um, yeah, we were, we were a pretty solid, happy, you know, unit in the world for sure. When you were growing up, what were your role models like? Did you have role models when you were growing up? You know, I think the, the, the people that I, you know, probably had the most influence on me and that, that really showed me how to live in the world, I would say, besides my parents, in addition to my parents, you know, I had, I had really cool grandparents, honestly, I'm, all four of them were, I was lucky enough, they were all alive well through into my high school and college years. Um, and, and really great. My father's parents were very creative, um, very, you know, like local community theater, very, um, just very creative. My grandmother was an educator. She went to Oberlin University back in the 40s or 30s, sorry. Um, uh, so, you know, education was was very important to them, um, but they were, you know, they were accessible and fun and creative and, um, you know, really, yeah, they just felt very accessible to me in, in a really cool way. My grandfather, my father's father had a, um, had this almost like this beautiful mind. He has this really incredible way that he, he was a knitter, you know, he, he would, he would knit these incredible like Irish, you know, blankets and scar or blankets and sweaters. And he would, he would basically set up his um, patterns based on, you know, like a deck of cards. So every deck, every card in the deck, you know, represented a, a different kind of stitch. And so he just had this really interesting logical mind that was, I didn't really get it at the time, but, it, but in hindsight, it was really neat to see growing up. And then my, my mother's parents were also just really um, engaged. They were very big in the Long Beach community um, locally. My father, my grandfather was the first um, African-American foreman uh, at the Long Beach Naval Shipyard uh, in the in the 60s, which was, was really, um, you know, something of great pride for him and, and really, you know, kind of put his sons on that pathway at the shipyard for really um, being part of that community. And my grandmother, you know, was a, you know, a, a black woman who was um, very into, you know, social movements, into um, supporting local community agencies. She ran a halfway house for people. Um, we always had uh, a lot of different people in and out of our, you know, sort of home and, and, and um, times for holidays and things. So just a very open and engaged and present people, right, in, in what was right around them. And I think that that also kind of shaped me a little bit to be open to folks and to be a part of something and to, to engage even at, you know, things right in front of you. Uh, so, yeah, I had really fantastic grandparents. I, I could talk all day about them. They were great. All and, them. and what about when you went to when you went to high school? What was that transition like for you? Did you were you getting good grades when you were growing up? Was school something that you focused on, and what kind of outside activities did you have? Yeah, you know, I went to a big public high school. I think we had twenty five hundred kids in my high school. Um, uh, you know, four hundred and fifty my graduating class. Um, I went to a very diverse high school. Um, you know, really, it was sort of, um, you know, if you almost quarter by quarter, sort of, you know, African American, Hispanic, 
Asian and white folks. I mean, it was a very really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's exactly that even, but that's what it felt like. It felt like a very naturally diverse environment, which I think, again, someone, you know, being biracial, that was a very, that was very fortunate for me and really, you know, kind of natural from the get-go. It wasn't something that was, um, you know, kind of had to be learned or challenged. So I was really appreciative for that. Um, you know, I'll be honest, you know, school came fairly easily to me and it's not because, you know, I'm not a genius by any means. I just think that, um, I don't know, school came a little bit easy for me. Um, I kind of, you know, I wasn't someone that had to, you know, struggle really hard in order to be able to kind of get the grades I needed to get. And so that has also had some influence on me over time, but I enjoyed school. It wasn't a, I didn't have a big, I didn't have a lot of angst during school and I did a ton of stuff. I was, you know, the kid that did a ton of stuff. I was big into sports and, um, you know, all the clubs and, you know, I was into student council. I was, you know, student body president, all that, all that stuff. So I had a, you know, I, I had a pretty good pathway in that, in, in, in that time, which I know can be really, really challenging for so many people, but I, I'm really grateful. I had a, I had a nice, pathway which certainly wasn't without challenges obviously but it was a, it was it was i enjoyed it <laughs> do, do you remember any challenges that you had in high school or any type of difficulties personally that had to kind of build your resilience i know you had to have that resilience when you when you went on to your future career which which paul will get into but yeah. what was some were there any difficult times that you had to go through and how did you get through those times you know, something I learned early, both in high school and college, um, I think sort of being self-aware and understanding from a pretty early age that, you know, all that glitters isn't gold, that people's personas aren't necessarily what they're really dealing with. Um, um, you know, people who you naturally kind of have envy about, or you, you know, the grass is always green and you're looking to the name, the, you know, the popular kids, the beautiful kids, the whatever. I, I think because of my, I don't know, I don't know, personality a little bit. I, I was friends with a lot of those folks and could see pretty early on that, yeah, just all that glitters isn't gold and that people, all of us are struggling with something and all of us sort of, um, you know, put our best, you know, our best looks forward, but that, that everyone has stuff that they're dealing with on the back end as well. So I think I learned that pretty early on, um, which has helped me overall. You know, I, 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 I would say the things I struggled with were, were kind of academically things that didn't come naturally to me um, and sort of really having to work hard at something to get a very specific answer for something to kind of get a very specific grade for something was difficult for me, um, you know, sort of in, in some of those more finite areas of, of academics. And I think, again, I'm sort of leaping ahead, but I, I can see how that's played itself out for me now in terms of what I'm drawn to. Um, more, um, less, less precision and, and more kind of thematic and more um, um, uh, context related things that I'm, I'm, I'm probably more drawn to and comfortable with than, you know, AP calculus, for example. <laughs> and, then, and then when you were in college, how did you, did you go directly from high school to college and what made you just decide to go to University of San Diego and what were your studies? Yeah. Um, I did. I went straight to university after after college, although I did probably try to convince my parents to take like, you know, what now is called a gap year, what we refer to a gap year. Um, but yeah, I went straight to Uni University of San Diego. I'm, again, I'm from Southern California. I was fortunate. I got a, I got a great 
um, scholarship, to be very honest. And I think that, you know, now as we all talk so much about the, the burden of student loan and how student loans and how that can really shape what comes after college. I mean, I'm really fortunate that I was able to, you know, one, go to college to go to a good college um, and get a good education and good experience, but that I came out with a lot of freedom to not be, you know, have to immediately figure out how to pay back, you know, $100,000 in student debt. So um, I'm a big fan of, of, of um, you know, I, I love my, uh, the University of San Diego is a great school. Um, it was, I, you'll appreciate that I, I also uh, really wanted to go to USC where my grandfather went, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the full ride kind of trumped, uh, had to trump the Trojans. Sorry about that. <laughs> I understand. I did my undergrad at Berkeley, so I get that. Yeah. So. I, I was very conflicted when I when I decided to go to USC. Trust yeah. me, it was it was difficult for me to walk on campus at first, but now I'm <laughs> I'm, to, I'm totally in now. Um, so when you completed your college or your years, and did you go directly for your master's after? No, and I you know I I'm a big believer in you know the world and life experience and being exposed in, in, in particular for for pe for people who are considering graduate school. I mean I. Um, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've done some um, adjunct professor uh, teaching, uh, and there's a real difference in folks who have some life experience um, versus those who don't coming into a graduate program. You know, I encourage anyone who wants to pursue graduate studies to do it. I think it teaches you how to think and how to articulate your position and, you know, really lets you get into topics in a meaningful way. I also really encourage that I think that that is even more fruitful when you have some life experience to to contribute to that process as well. So I did a semester abroad when I was in undergrad. I went to Florence, Italy. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, uh, it was uh, just for so many reasons. Um, and is that, I is, that, that is, is that a semester abroad or is that vacation or, or both? <laughs> I mean, I, listen, I've I, I, I never I, been I, accused I, of making bad decisions. So I, I whatever you want to call it, it was great. I, I I'm projected right now. I'm projected right now. Chase. You know, yeah, whatever, however you want to call it, it was great. It was, um, you know, the, 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 one of the things I say about that experience the most is, you know, it really, it really, but in addition to sort of being in the world and being in Europe and, and having exposure to, you know, somewhere totally different than you and different language and all of that, um, you know, it, Truly, you know, jokes aside, Florence has got to be the home of some of the most beautiful art and appreciation and display of art and architecture in the world. And, you know, coming from the suburbs of Southern California, that's not a lot of what I was exposed to or that I, you know, even can understand or, you know, or even see. And, you know, that, that period of art in, in Florence, I think, is such a beautiful introduction, no pun intended, but a wonderful introduction to the power of art and the and the accessibility of it and how it can really be a part of a, a of a culture and society that that um, you know just makes things more beautiful and expressive. Um, so I was really grateful for that experience. Florence is is is, is, out, is absolutely stunning stunning city in the world. So, so Tracy, let me ask you really quick, and I'm going to throw it to to my co-host right after this question. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts and. I think they, they may not have the ability to go to school. And one of the things you yeah. talked about was traveling yeah. and the importance of traveling. And even if you can't necessarily go to another country, you can read books or you can just take travel, you know, go locally. 
what would you suggest for someone that doesn't have that ability to travel and how would you how would they learn about italy or how would they yeah how would they learn about things to inspire them or, or travel locally what kind of advice would you give to them yeah no that's a great question i mean uh, you know during covid i um I took a like a road trip, basically. Long story short, I I I'm, I've lived in I live in New York now, and sort of um, when we had a break during not a break but one of the first breaks during COVID in in, in the summer of 2020, I drove down to Nashville uh, to stay with a friend for a few weeks and then drove myself back up, which was back up through um, Kentucky. I was in Tennessee. I drove back through Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, back to New York, and I, you know. If you would have asked me what part of the country I would want to travel to, that part of the country would have been pretty low on my list. You know, I did not have Kentucky or West Virginia or Tennessee as places that I that I would I would have prioritized. And it was such a blessing to be in our own country, in our own area, and really have uh, exposure and um, experience and. Um, just, just in our own environment, you know, I don't think that you have to have this idea that to, to, to travel and see the world that you've got to go to, you know, name the country to Florence, Italy, for example, or to, you know, or to Thailand or to Turkey or anything. I think you can have, I mean, I know you can have important experiences right near you, you know, and I, and I just yesterday was talking to someone about how I really hope this trend of um, you know, refurbishing old motels really continues because just the motel, you know, the, the history of our country, right? That motels existed to support families traveling, you know, in the U.S., driving their car through the U.S. And even that, I think, not even even that, I mean, I really support that. I think it's fantastic. I would, I would drive around this country over and over again if I could. So to, the short answer to your question is you don't have to get on a plane to go anywhere. I think that even right around you, there are so many ways to access um, different experiences, different exposure, different people um, that doesn't have to be a grand plan of, of getting on a plane and going somewhere. So I highly support that. And well, all the millions of ways you can get things online, all that stuff is obvious, but yeah. You know. I, I try to encourage you, I tell people, you know, as a, as a kid growing up and not in a, you know, and for myself, I always kind of, um, I lost myself in books a lot and yeah it taught me so much about the world and life and yeah. reading about other people's experiences. And like you said, even just taking a trip to the local lake or yeah. just taking a walk in a park sometimes and just getting out in nature and it just teaches you about life. And so I get to segue to my friend, Paul here and it's all yours, Paul. He's going to explore all the other wonderful aspects of your life and where your career went. So go for it, Paul. Man, Martin, thanks for letting me be co-host uh, co with the infamous Tracy Rains. <laughs> Tracy and I go back, uh, way back, over half my life now, I've known Tracy, um, and one of the most fascinating, fabulous people that I know, Tracy. Thanks for jumping into this space. Oh, uh, you know, Martin did this nice, warm setup of, again, uh, your background, and many things I didn't know about you. Some I did, but many I did, <laughs> particularly around the idea around public service. I want to dive into that in a second. But first, I want to ask you a couple questions around creativity, and you, the theme of creativity keeps on emerging um, with your description on you know, how you grew up, how you raised your family, and you have this really cool piece of artwork behind you. I think one of the best uh, webcast uh, backgrounds I've ever seen. It has this big sun, and then these tiered rocks that are leading up to the sun. Tell me about it. 
Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, um, I, I just, this is a new addition to my home office and I have been waiting to get the right thing behind me and I just got it this weekend. So thanks for noticing. Um, it's, uh, it's just a piece of art. I'm up here in Hudson Valley now and it's by a local artist and it's just a, a print on linen, but I, I really responded to it because, you know, I am a, well, coming from Southern California, I'm definitely a sunshine kind of gal. Uh, I like, uh, you know, I, I, I just respond to sort of like sun and brightness and, and warmth and kind of being out in the world. Um, and then these rocks are really these like beautifully balanced kind of Zen-like rocks that are kind of balanced in a way. And, and as I was thinking about this podcast, if I had, you know, just a couple of words that I had to, I don't know, use to describe me or, or things that are important to me, you know, balance is really one of them. Um, and, you know, not to overplay this metaphor, these are all kind of like rocks, you know, balance kind of interestingly, not not perfectly. And I think that's kind of what things are like, you know, they're, they're, we don't know what we're going to be dealt with. We don't know what variables we're going to have, no matter what our plan is. And, and finding a way to kind of make it all work and balance uh, and do that consciously, I think is, is really critical. So thanks for noticing. And yeah, there's a little bit of meaning behind it. Man, there seems like there's more than a little meaning behind it. There's a lot of meaning behind it. <laughs> you know, Tracy, you have so many different passions. I, I want to talk about one passion because I've always wanted to ask you this question about scuba diving. Yes. I know you're a big scuba diver. Yes. What do you think about when you're underwater? Yes. Well, you know, um, speaking of balance, you know, I, I've, I've, I think most people probably describe me as pretty even keeled or sort of, you know, not, not too high strung um, as a as a normal demeanor, but I've all, always really professionally had very stressful jobs. <laughs> you know, my main career was 15 years in, in emergency response in an international disaster response context. So that is a, by definition, a stressful job. I'm now in an environment um, that is also a fair amount of stress and pressure. And being under the water for me is one of the most is a place where I can just be really quiet, actually. And scuba diving is, you know, it has a limited field of vision. You know, if you have a mask on, you have limited peripheral vision. And it really is like kind of right what is right in front of you. Um, you can hear your voice. You can hear your own breath, you know, very well. And, every, you know, many people know from either meditation or things like that, that your breathing is, is so essential and being connected to your breath. So. It's a really, I think it it's something that puts you completely in another universe that you have no control over, that you don't even know exists. You're sitting on top of the water and you're like, oh, the, the waves are so cool. And then you go under and it's like going to the moon. I mean, it is just, you know, can be just a phenomenal experience of what you're seeing underwater. But also I think what I love about it for me so much is that it does allow me to just focus and to breathe and to be present and to and to have an appreciation for things that are you don't even know existed, you know? I mean, I feel like people don't even give what's under the ocean a second thought usually. And so to be in it and to be humbled by it and to be totally out of your element and to be in your own world, it's 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 really magical. I'm, I'm, I just am so grateful I'm able to do it. That's so awesome. It, you know, I think about all these things that you're talking about, right? Or things that we talk about in leadership space around you yeah. know, creating balance and recognizing what's happening with yourself or that self-awareness piece. Yeah how important that is with how we show up um, and how others play off of our energy. Um, yeah. Certainly all those are critically important. So, you know, I want to learn more about what you do when your uh, friends and family say, Hey, Tracy, what do you do? What do you say? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, when I, well, well, now I work for an organization um, that we are responsible for. Um, we're one of nine agencies responsible for, 
U.S. Refu US refugee resettlement. So of the refugees that come into the U.S., um, there are nine agencies. My agency is responsible for about a third of those refugees in the U.S. And so my job now is to um, support our offices around the country. We have about 30, and I support a, a good percentage of those in um, providing services to new Americans. And what those services are is everything from, you know, picking people up to the airport all the way on to, you know, years later of, of case management and mental health support and um, economic empowerment and education and things like that. So that's the context in which I work. And I say that my job is to um, enable our offices and our staff to provide those services to folks and, and, and make that uh, Get, think, get problems out of their way so they can do their work. That's that's how I describe what I do now. Very different from what I did before, but that's what I do now. Oh, how would you describe what you did before? What I did before, I was I responsible for international disaster response for the American Red Cross. And what that means is that any major disaster happening outside of the U.S., um, if the American Red Cross responded, uh, then my team was responsible for that. And that basically meant um, facilitating either good material goods or money or people or information uh, across the vast uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent network to respond to disasters and crises. And we did that, I don't know, about 40 times a year um, in different capacities, which is why that number is so big about the 200 or something. Yeah. <laughs> I just find it to be totally fascinating and amazing. Yeah. yeah. How did your passion for travel influence the career trajectory that you went upon? Yeah. I mean, I traveled right after college. So, you know, I graduated college. I uh, saved up money over the summer um, and had a, a few thousand dollars. And by a few, I mean like three or four thousand uh, dollars and traveled for, I thought it was going to be a few months. I ended up being about a year and a half. I worked during that time when I was overseas. And I just knew when I was doing that, I knew that I wanted to have a career in that space. I didn't know what that meant exactly. I didn't really know what development work was or humanitarian work or anything like that. But I knew that I loved being in the world. I knew I loved people. I knew I loved different environments. I knew that I had a, an easy way of connecting with people when I was traveling, which I you know, wasn't lost on me. And I, and I, and I think I fed off that and, and really appreciated it, which is why I was gone for much longer than I planned. And so I knew that somehow, you know, I couldn't be a backpacker my whole life, but I knew that I wanted to somehow, you know, be a contributing, you know, factor in, in what was happening around the world. And so I came back from that and immediately applied, applied to Peace Corps. Um, and uh, I had a, a little bit of an education background. I taught and then was lucky enough to, to be accepted into Peace Corps into an awesome program that you know well, Paul, uh, in education in Southern Africa. And that again, I think just reestablished and reaffirmed that I wanted to be, you know, in the world in some way, in a positive contributing factor. And I think that Peace Corps experience, um, like many things, it's both inspiring and humbling. Um, so, you know, you have grand ideas of what you can do, and then you have a reality of what that's like to actually do something or work with people or be out of your element. Um, and it just firmed all that up for me that that was what I, you know, wanted to be a part of. And I wanted to do it in a way that was um, well-informed and educated and based on, on you know, um, you know, just based on education, not just based on my big idea. So I came back, went back to grad school and stayed on this path. I love it. I mean, you're talking a lot about 
you know, your interest in traveling and being out, um, and also this real connection with people and finding a way to be able to connect with them. Yeah. When you think about you know the work that you're doing now, either you know currently or in your past position, I mean, you meet a lot of people under very difficult circumstances. Yes. Is there one interaction that really just stands out for you and you kind of replay it in your mind? Um, what was it, and why do you replay it? Yeah. Um... I think that's a really good question. I think to do that kind of work, often you um, you have to compartmentalize, right? I mean, you know, when you work in crisis and, and disaster response, you have to compartmentalize because otherwise I think it'd be overwhelming and you couldn't sort of do your job if you were um, just constantly thinking how terrible something is or how hard or how sad it is. And so I think I spent a lot of my early part of my career really being able to compartmentalize the the, the drama and the pain and suffering that that I was seeing. Um, but then, you know, like many of us through our lives, you you experience you know your own loss or your own grief, and that happened to me. And you know, it really broke my heart open. I think in a way that you know just made me a much more empathetic person. Um, and to being able to not be afraid of people's grief and suffering, but to be able to sit with it a bit, and um, you know, not hide, you know, not kind of hide behind a spreadsheet or hide behind a computer or hide behind, you know, a logistics plan, um, but actually really appreciate some of the real trauma and great pain and grief people go through. And I think it made me a better leader. I mean, I know it did. it's made me a better leader and a better person. Um, and, you know, whatever that experience is for people in terms of really feeling something deeply, whether it's, you know, birth or death or, you know, love or, you know, loss. I think these, these really um, powerful human experiences can sort of break you open in a way that you, you don't even realize that you need it. And so, I'll just say that that shaped me quite a bit um, in my work. And, and, and just one experience I had was, um, you know, I was in the Philippines. It was after a major hurricane. Um, I was, you know, I was running the op operation, but I kind of went through the process as a as if I were receiving assistance just so I could experience it and understand it. And in that process, I was standing in line with a woman who was definitely in her 80s and turned out we had the exact same birthday, which is not, you know, common. And so through an interpreter, we were sort of talking and, and, and we basically had the same birthday. And I just, I, she, she was this 80 year old woman who had lost everything, but this, it, it didn't feel like this tragic environment, just to be clear, but it just felt like being next to somebody who I had this kind of personal connection with for some you know arbitrary reason about our birthdays. But she reminded me so much of my grandmother, actually, not going back to my grandparents and, and just reminded me of the human element of this whole thing and getting out of kind of how many people can we get goods to and how much time and what's their ID and what's the process, but actually being with somebody who I, you know, arbitrarily had this connection with, but then, you know, just really standing with her and being near her and seeing her and seeing her age and understanding that, you know, what she is now going through at this age, you know, trying to get, you know, financial assistance from the Red Cross after a hurricane, it really, or a typhoon, it, it, it really just moved me. I think about it all the time. I, it's one of the few pictures I have of, of, of people that I, that I keep around on my desk. It just really moved me and, and reminded me that in the grand scheme of the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people you're trying to assist, that each one of those people is a person. And that really just kind of shaped the way I think of things differently now.
And it's really, really reinforcing your earlier comments about the role of public service and how you grew up with it, you know, in your youth, and then you practice it every day and yeah. recognizing the humanness of our systems. Yeah. You know, with, with the humanness of systems, there's also an underlying stress that can emerge. And you've seen a lot of systems under stress, right? Both human and things that might be more in administrative nature. What do you recognize that might be a common thread that um, you've seen experience with systems under stress? It's a really interesting question. Um, I, you know, I'll tell you, I think I'm sort of part of the system under stress right now. Um, as I said, I work in uh, refugee resettlement in the U.S. And no matter what your thoughts are on it, it has been under stress for the last five years. Um, the last administration definitely put stress on that system uh, in terms of changing of policies, of funding, of expectations, et cetera. And then in the last several months, we've had um, a massive evacuation of, of Af uh, from Afghanistan of like 80,000 people without any pre-planning or pre-warning. Um, and then the Ukraine situation, right, with, 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 with uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and so this system that I'm in is, has been under stress and strain uh, from a variety of ways for the last five years. And I say that because, you know, almost in jest, I, I said I was going to leave emergency response to come into something that's a little more calm. And right on cue, refugee resettlement and immigration have been right in the spotlight in, in a really intense way and putting stress and strain all across the system. Um, I would say that, again, I, you know, this is everything can't just boil down to people, 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 but I think you, you, you overlook the people element of things at your peril and to overlook the fact that whatever system or process or policy, these are either implemented by people or supported by people or undermined by people or championed by people. You know, there, there's, there's not a system that is, that is immune to um, the influence or the buy-in or the acceptance or the, you know, of individual people, you know, and I think you risk that at your peril. Like, I think, you know, it, uh, right now, you know, we're doing a big, again, we're, we're, we're working with a major evacuation of, Af of Afghans from Afghanistan who are kind of being resettled into the U.S. And there are expectations around a system that just by numerically can't work. You know what I mean? Like there's only so many units of affordable housing. There's only so many, um, you know, uh, people to process, you know, employment. You know, there's only so many jobs that are, that are appropriate for this group at one time. And so just numerically, it, 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 it is, it is, it is um, at odds. And just to kind of keep saying, just keep doing it and just be innovative and keep doing it. I, I I think that that's a fallacy. I do. I think that you have to, you know, I think that we like to, I think in the United States and our Western culture, just sort of, you know, push through and say, you know, and then, you know, look at all the great ways that we innovated after something. And I think that sometimes you could push so hard that it, that it breaks a system or people or put, pulls it so far that, that it's kind of hard to, to, to bring back together. And so, I'm not saying that's what's happening by definition right now, but what I am saying is that to undervalue or underestimate that people is what make any system happen, I think you do that at your peril. Yeah, as you're describing that, what goes from my mind is thinking about, you know, that saying that uh, do more with less, 
And at some point, you simply can't do more with less, yeah. right? You put the efficiency behind it all. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the system not operating the way that it was intended to operate. Yeah. Let's save that for another conversation because I think we can go pretty deep on that pretty fast. Um, but I'm curious about how you take care of your team while all this is happening. Because what you're describing is, you know, all these human interactions you're talking about, uh, small P politics coming in, big P politics coming in. You're talking about it being a global affair, um, even if it's your work now is domestic. You know, how do you take care of your team during all this? Yeah, I think that it's a really good question. You know, particularly now with obviously everything we're dealing with with COVID, right? And, and people working remotely or hybrid or new people coming on who've never worked in an office environment. This whole thing is a whole nother element of, of what's going on in connection. But look, I think connection, connection, connection is critical. I think, you know, connecting people within their teams, within their organization, and with you as a leader is is really important. And you know, again, I don't want to lean too hard on this stuff, but I do think knowing who people are, knowing having an idea of what, what's important to them, um, knowing how to communicate with different people, um, and just really leaning into the you know your emotional intelligence quiver, I think is essential. And you know, I, I just think that we are again we need to know who we are as humans ourselves. And, you know, so we need to know who you are yourself to be able to kind of, um, you know, know what your balance needs to be, what your what you, need, what you need to fill up your tank, what you need to be able to do to be present for people. Because when you're leading people and you're trying to connect with them, you know, they need to see steadiness. I really believe that. I think they need to see authenticness and, and authenticity and being honest with people and, um, you know, seeing you as a human, as a leader, but also no one wants a frazzled and frenzied leader, right? No one wants someone who's like breaking down in front of them or that they seem overwhelmed either. So I think really being self-aware, being self-managed, understanding your own, you know, needs and balance and what makes you tick, I think then you can show up for people like that in another way, um, really authentically and just know who they are, communicate, be, you know, again, authentic and, and um, present and to be able to have some empathy for folks. I mean, you know, we don't have to go down a whole COVID rabbit hole, but clearly the last couple of years have been, you know, seismic for anybody. I don't care what your circumstances were and, you know, having some empathy around that, particularly now, I think has served, has served me well. And I've responded to people in my life, who are leaders who are who are sympathetic to that uh, on my behalf as well. But connect with people, know where they are, be empathetic to their environment and their circumstances, be authentic, um, um, and I think that'll just give you a better a, a better chance of of having people want to follow you as a leader and being a more effective leader. And it's all this realness that you're bringing into the space. Uh, I've always known you to be very optimistic. What are you most optimistic about right now at this moment? I mean. I have to say, I am, you know, the, the, the conversations that are on the table right now in our society are pretty mind-blowing. Um, I've been a little unnerved personally by, by some of the things that have happened over the last couple of years, for sure. But there is so much that is like out in the open and that is, you know, that people, you know, you know, in the, you know the younger generation who is who, who just has a lot to say, who is very authentically themselves and is pushing us, I think, in ways that are naturally sort of uncomfortable for people, myself included sometimes, for sure. But 
you know, I don't want to sound like an old lady saying I'm excited for the younger generation, but I think it's real. You know, I really, and I've, I've just started feeling that now, you know, just this, these last, this last year or two with all the LGBTQ stuff, the, you know, Black Lives Matter, the, you know, work around, um, you know, really calling the environment into play. Um, uh, you know, I just think that, that the, the openness of those discussions and putting them front and center, even if some people are uncomfortable about them is probably a good thing. You know, I don't know how pragmatic it all is. I don't know how it's going to, you know, avail itself over time, but I think the fact that we're talking about things in a, in a pretty, uh, in some ways radical way is probably good. Uh, Agreed. Uh, I want to go back to an earlier statement you made around creativity, because I think it ties in exactly with what you're being optimistic about and what your role is right now. And that's getting to the space around creativity. I mean, using that illustration of your grandfather who, who knit, you know, and created these card um, Afghans and things of that sort. Um, I find it amazing in a lot of ways. One is non-traditional type of activity for a man to do, right? So thinking about yeah. uh, being able to do that, finding that as a creative outlet and recognizing that you have any creative outlets as well. If we relate that to the work that you're doing within public service, you know, we talk a lot about creativity in this space, but creativity to a point, right? We don't, right. I look horrible in orange, right? I don't want to be uh, creative mm-hmm. in such a way that's going to get me in trouble, but yet creativity still needs to take place. How do you think about the role of creativity in the work that you do? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question um, because some of the work I do is very, you know, it's basically federally funded, which can be very precise and very, you know, very, um, uh, compliance driven, you know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the work that I'm around is, is it really is like very, very prescribed. So within that space, what do you do? Right. And so what I think that myself and as the organization and, um, you know, particularly if folks are in, you know, public service where you might be funded, you know, your funding might limit what you feel is your ability to be creative or innovative. Um, I think you always have to get the basics right, right? I mean, I think that you have to get your your basic core requirements and your core service right. And then, you know, it's like that, you know, the the old saying, it's like the more you know the rules, then the more you can stretch them or break them or go outside of them. And so I think that the risk by throwing all of that out and just kind of going to the new thing is that you, you, you don't even know what the rules are that you're breaking or not breaking and you get yourself in trouble really quickly. So I think that the key for me is to, to know your core work, to do the core work very well, to, to, to keep your, 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 your core services and your resources on point and then do that. And then outside of that, you can do all of the gilding the lily. You can do all of your, your new ideas that are adjacent to that, complementary to it, um, et cetera. But I, I, I am not a throw the baby out with a bathwater kind of person. I think that, you know, that that there are core foundations that are there for a reason and a purpose and it's good to keep on them. But, um, you know, let's, the world is changing faster than we can imagine. I mean, we, we all know this, we just had COVID. We we're a social service provider. Two years ago, we did all of our services in person for the last two years. We've had to figure out a way to deliver services remotely or in a hybrid way or go to where people are or to have them digitally or, 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 or. And so, you know, um, there's no, what it, I think is Winston Churchill, like don't let any crisis go to waste. Right. So it's a good time to try things out right now um, and to stretch, but I would just basically say, keep the core work solid, know what the parameters you're working with. And then, you know, I think you'll, 
you'll be able to focus your sort of innovative energy um, uh, more uh, with, with less waste, you know, like, you know, to, to, to come to come to something that that is useful. The last thing I'll just say on that, too, is, you know, people, generally speaking, know what they want and need. And if you follow them, whether it's follow their voice or follow their actions or just listen to them, you will probably get to what people need and want more than sitting in a room developing a program or a process to to give what people give people what you think they need and so you know whoever you're serving listen to them i mean really i just it's so basic but it's like listen to the people you were trying to serve and do what you can to incorporate that perspective um into the work that you're um, able to do and be of service to them how do you do that though when your work is so prescribed yeah where yeah. so it has this big reg regulatory component to it i mean yeah. how do you how do you get into that space? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate right now. I work with an organization, you know, in the humanitarian space, there's there's often not room or appetite for research or data or learning or lessons learned and stuff. And I'm really fortunate to be with an organization for whom that's very important to them. And I have seen us do, so again, keeping our core work solid, but engaging more into um uh, more innovative space with our own resources, proving it, proving a concept, proving a theory, and then getting buy-in from it. I think that we tend to feel that we are only at the, um, you know, we have to do what our funders say, right? Or we have to do what our donors say, or we have, like, they're the experts. And to be honest, you know, you know, service delivery folks have much more expertise in this space than funders do, generally speaking, right? And so the more that you can represent your innovations or your work or your um, ideas in a way that can be understood by people who are paying for them i think that innovation isn't that far off or you know whatever innovation gets 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 tired after a while but you know changing that dynamic i think you have more influence over that than sometimes we realize i just think it has to be articulated and presented in a way that makes sense for the folks who are paying for it um but we have a really I don't want to go overboard to have a really innovative organization, but we definitely do things that are new and that are thought leaders and that move the needle, I think, because of just that. Smart ideas, we try them out, we have data, we articulate them in a way that, that is understood by folks who are asking to pay for them, and we're able to do things in addition to our really prescribed work. I love it. Tracy, we want to know more about you, though. You know, you've taken us along this journey of, you know, starting off with where you are, where you came from, getting into the space around, you know, public service and the type of work that you're doing. Um, we want to go into a new segment that's called, are you ready for this? Ready. The first eight questions with Tracy Rains. <laughs> Tracy, are you a cat or dog person? Oh, absolutely a dog person. Ocean or mountains? Oh, absolutely ocean. East coast, west coast. Ooh. Can I say both coasts, please? <laughs> I, I think I legitimately can say both coasts. <laughs> I thought you could hedge your bets and say the Midwest. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've lived on the East Coast for 20 years, so I can't, I can't, can't deny it. But I can't deny my roots. <laughs> Favorite place to visit? Um, I think one of those beautiful places in the whole world is Big Sur, California, the northern coast. Uh, so I would definitely put that up there. Favorite food? Um, I could eat cheese every day the rest of my life. <laughs> that hasn't changed since I've known you. Uh, book yeah, you're exactly. currently reading. <laughs> Sorry, what was the last one? Book you're currently reading. 
Um, I am reading a book. It's right next to me. It's called the um, uh, the Brooklyn Follies, which is um, about a family in New York after 9/11. I'm also reading the Power. Well, I'm listening to uh, the Power Broker, which is about Edward Moses, uh, who shaped New York City fundamentally and one of the most impactful sort of urban planners in our country. It's a fascinating book. It's like 900 pages. That's why I'm listening to it. <laughs> Person you like to meet? Oh, oh. Well, it's maybe a little on the nose to say Oprah, but I'm not gonna lie. I love my girl. Um, and if he were still on this planet, I am a diehard Prince fan. So it would have been Prince. Uh, maybe that's answering number two favorite artist. Prince. <laughs> Stevie Wonder and Prince. <laughs> oh, the music route. Yeah, I'm going the music route. Yeah. I thought you were going to visual arts. Uh, favorite saying? Favorite saying? Um, well, I have a quote that I really love, and I'm not going to get it right, but it basically says, you know, the world is painful and difficult and unfair, um, but it's shot through with beauty and laughter and love, and that's where you need to find your space. So I probably butchered the actual quote, but it's just acknowledging the, you know, Life in the world is difficult and painful, but there's a lot of beauty in it. Man, and a poet. <laughs> Best piece of advice that you ever received, and who was it by, or who was it from? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I was going to say something funny for my grandma. Um, you know, my, my mom was very keen on, on you know, not being judgmental you know, hold, reserving your judgment and, you know, leading with kindness and leading with acceptance, I think is, is, was always in my family. So I don't know if it was an explicit sort of saying, but it was definitely, I've always been around that kind of dynamic of, of leading with kindness and openness and non-judgmental, being non-judgmental. How do you want to be remembered today? How do I want what? To be remembered today. You know, I'd like to be remembered as someone who, you know, tried to bring out the best, tried to see the best in people and bring out the best in people in a way that they could contribute, you know, positively, whatever that meant. You know, I, 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 I like that idea of just kind of being a facilitator and a celebrator and a making space for people to be their best and to enjoy themselves. Life is good. <laughs> Life is good. Enjoy yourself. Tracy, what a joy. Thanks for letting me put you in the hot, hot seat. For wow. That, I felt like it was the back of the Vanity Fair magazine. You. Thanks for letting me be the co-host today. I'm going to toss the baton back to you. Hey, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate you. That was a good line of questioning there. Tracy made it through the gauntlet there. So good job, Tracy. <laughs> so I got I got a, real, a, a couple other questions for you. Sure. My, my producer wants to know, what high school did you go to? I am a very proud graduate of Saddleback High School in Santa Ana, the mighty class of 90. Go Red Runners. Well, well guess what? He guessed your high school correctly. He was, there we go. That, he was, yes. He put that in the chat for me. Yes. And I wanted to go back on this. I, I'm not trying to be a downer here, but yeah. one of the real quick question for you. Um, one of the things that Paul brought up to me, and I it just made me think of this. Were you ever, because you're dealing with a variety of different governments, mm -hmm. um, 
were you ever out there in a situation where the government was really difficult to deal with or it puts you kind of in a precarious or dangerous situation because of the work you do? Um, I mean, yes and no. I would, I would say this, that, um, again, back to the other theme, you know, governments are made of people and, you know, there are policies and there are stances of things. Um, and then there are individual people who implement them and, 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 and things like that. I think in the work that I do, it tends to be in a crisis situation. And when you're in a crisis or disaster or something that's overwhelming, you know, imagine yourself in their position where they're trying to run their country or their environment and they have been, it's overwhelmed their capacity to do it. And then you suddenly have, you know, any number of people from around the country or around the world trying to help. Um, and that doesn't always translate literally and figuratively in the way that you think it is. So I don't, I, I don't think I've ever been sort of like intentionally or sort of, you know, put in a position to undermine the work or to, um, yeah, to undermine or to get in the way of the work. But, you know, we work in times of crisis and and people's reactions um, and people's responses really do vary. And I think by and large, most people think they're doing the right thing when they're when they're in these environments. And so if it if it plays out in a way that isn't good for me, I, I try to figure out, you know, what they're dealing with that I might not be aware of. So to your question, I haven't been, you know, put in a, in a, in a, in a hyper, um, you know, in a hyper dangerous environment, certainly not intentionally, but, you know, we are, we're working in situations that are, that are, that are touchy and that are sensitive and are consequential. And so I think being able to navigate that is, is, is critical to that work. And, you know, we don't have to get too into it, but, but things aren't great here right now in some ways, you know? And so I think that it's very easy for us to be looking internationally and in all these different, you know, ideas about voting, ideas about safety, ideas about public safety. And, you know, we are not immune to that as a country either. So I do think it's kind of interesting having that perspective. We, we like to put a lot of labels around the world and, you know, we are all, we all have our <laughs> facets of our, of our countries that are, that are, you know, important to be uh, aware of. Okay. We're winding down. I have a two, these are a couple of rapid fire ones. You're, yeah. you're going to be like, Oh my God, you gave me these at the end here. Um, <laughs> It, what would what would the the older version of Tracy, in terms of advice, give the younger version of Tracy? Wow. Well, I would I would tell my younger version to to learn more languages. To be very honest with you, I think that uh, one of my very few regrets in life is not to be more fluent in more languages around the world. To be honest, um, and. I think I've done a pretty good job of trying to be present in my life, but, you know, life is long and it's short, you know, and so each of these phases, you know, take them for what they are and embrace them and don't try to race to the next phase or, you know, spend too much time looking back at what's past. I think being present and enjoying where you are, when you are, um, I would just reiterate that for myself. And I would say learn learn more languages. <laughs> and then let me ask you this. This will be like if you can give me a one minute answer to this one. And I know you're going to say, why did you give me this here at the end? You probably you probably have one of the most stressful jobs I can imagine, um, just based upon what Paul's told me and in my own research. Yeah. How do you handle stress advice wise? Two or three things that you'd give people, because a lot of people listen to the podcast uh, have very difficult, stressful lives and, and jobs. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give somebody? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's an important question. I mean, one, you know, we alluded to earlier is find something where it can just be yours, you know, whether that's exercise or meditation or diving or reading or walking or whatever it is, but you need to find something that is yours. That is that you are the only one you have to think about in that space, right? That it's not for anybody else. It's just for you. And I think that finding that is critically important because you have to be able to compartmentalize and take yourself out of spaces that are just, you know, that are, that need to be, you need to get out of. I think that's one. I think two, you know, I will tell you as someone who has been, who has felt indispensable, no one is indispensable. And I don't mean that to be harsh. I just think that people tend to, especially in this work, tend to take on the weight of the world as if, if they don't do something, it's not going to be done. Or if they don't do it themselves in the way that they think it should be done, then it will fail. And I will tell you, that's just not true. <laughs> it's not true. And so I think having a, a healthy balance of being committed and, and, you know, dedicated and putting, you know, all of your energy into something is really, or energy is very important. And there are limits to that. You know, and don't let yourself be consumed by whatever it is, no matter what, the, no matter how important it is. I mean, I just think that understanding their limits to your individual, both contribution and essential nature without, you know, saying you don't really matter. But, but, but finding that balance, I think, will help keep you healthy and be a good contributor in, in, in situations that are difficult. And, you know, the last thing I will say, and again, I've been, I've been deep in it, you know, I have been deep in stuff, you know, this too shall pass, everything passes, everything passes. And again, finding this balance of not being too flippant about it and finding real meaning, but knowing that everything is temporary and no matter what it is, no matter how, what the grief, the pain, the stress, all of that is will change over time. Even if it doesn't fully leave you, it will change over time. And so understanding, even when you're deep in it, um, you know, when you're in the deep and it feels like you're, you know, so deep that you can't swim up, you know, it, it, it shall pass. And I think that that, that perspective has, has helped me get through things that have been very overwhelming um, and scary sometimes. So that's what I would say. Well, I have to thank my producer, Brian, Garcia from the MMA Junkie podcast. I'm going to throw it out there. He's one of the one of my mentors and uh, one of the best podcasts out there. So I have to thank my producer. I have to thank my co-host, Paul, who's done a wonderful job, and he's going to be with us again. Um, so thank you so much, Paul, for being here. And Tracy, thank you so, so much for, for your time today. I know you're extremely busy. Is there any way or is there anything that you want to plug if someone wants to get a hold of you? Is there a good way for them to get a hold of you or... Uh, anything you want to plug? Um, I'll just say, you know, be engaged right now. The world is 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 quite a place, and um, it can be overwhelming and daunting and scary, and so much that you kind of want to check out. Um, of all times, since I think a lot of us have been alive, this time feels very urgent. Uh, and so, you know, the the classic quote, you know, do what you can, where you can, how you can, by any means you can. But, but this is this is a time to be engaged in the world and not recoil from the world. So I just encourage all of us to do that no matter what your point of entry is, just now is the time for sure. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. We'll have a wonderful guest on again that Paul's helped uh, take care of our, our next guest as well. So I have to tell you, we've been so, so, it's been such a pleasure, Tracy, to have you on here today. Thank you so much. 
Everybody, if you like the podcast, give it a thumbs up. Keep listening. Keep learning. And see you next time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks you guys.